Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. Today, my guest is Daniel Spector. Daniel Spector is one of the heads at Tisch School of the Arts Classical Studio and also the Goldberg Department of Dramatic Writing. Daniel was a professor of mine that has become a coach and is one of the most valuable and insightful people in not only to classical, but also contemporary texts I've ever had. It's been one of the most profound experiences professionally to work with Daniel, not only because of his immense knowledge, but also because of his ability to believe and to connect to actors. I am so excited for you guys to hear this. Here it is. Daniel Spector. Welcome to An Actor's Spares. Thank you for being here. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. Well, you're single-handedly the best, one of the best teachers I ever had, but the best I had at NYU. And uh, so I got to know you because you taught a class with Alec Baldwin, a master class that you had auditioned for. And that was the first time that I met you. Um, and I kind of went into that just thinking that would be a thing that I would try and I was lucky enough to get in and get a chance to work with you. And obviously working with Alec was great, but I really became like obsessed with the way you work and your process and you, just the way you're able to work with actors. I said this to you on the subway right here is that I find some of the best acting instruction I've had has always come from directors. There are a lot of acting coaches that are actors out there. I think a lot of actors do that. I don't want to say fall into that trap because they think actors know, but I think directors make for the best acting teachers. Um, that's interesting. I, I, that, that could be true. Um, let me, let me put it this way. I, I would imagine that good acting teachers are also good directors. Um, but sort of like a square is always a rectangle, but a rectangle isn't always a square. Yeah. I'm not sure that every director is necessarily a great acting teacher. Yeah. Some of the great directors, uh, are brilliant at staging, at putting bodies in space, at combining all of the design elements into a cohesive uh, vision for the script. But, um, yeah, that could be. I should also say for the listeners out there, you're the head of the classical studio at NYU, and you're also at the writing program as well, right, the Goldberg? Yeah, I teach in drama and in the dramatic writing program uh, at uh, the Tisch School of the Arts. But before we get into Tisch and, and that, I'd like to start at the beginning. So you grew up in Florida, right? Tampa, Florida. Tampa, Florida. Look at that. How was that? Um, not my favorite. Yeah. the it's. I've always been at pains, uh, especially moving to the north, to adequately convey, you know, from central Florida, especially on up to the north of Florida, it's the deep south in many ways. Yeah. Um, I think people think of Florida as Disney and... Old palm people trees. and palm trees yeah. and Miami um, and alligators. And it's that's all true. But, um, yeah, I was a, you know, Jewish gay kid whose parents were Yankees already. Um, so I think I, I always felt a little out of water and I moved to New York as soon as I could, which was 18. Uh, but going back to your childhood, were your parents in the arts at all? Like how did that – how did you stumble into them? That that question sort of remains in my family. My sister's a doctor. My father's a lawyer. My mom does real estate. Wow. Um, how I got into this, uh, maybe the gay part helps. Um, that doesn't necessarily portend a life in the arts, but it it often does. Well, I'm curious, as a child, like were were you aware of musicals and plays? Like, how, what was your first theatrical experience? I, f I think my my mom put me in a 
fine arts camp. Yes, with uh, and there I met maybe my first mentor, who ended up becoming my piano teacher. Her name is Larky, uh, Larky Fleming, and um, she. We had a nice little relationship where I I found that maybe this was something I could do that wasn't baseball or football or tennis, um, and she really uh, sort of opened my mind and my heart to this art form. And I stopped doing it in middle school, I think for no good reason other than um, that's not what you did yeah. in middle school. And then uh, my freshman year of high school, I saw a um, sign about auditions for a musical that I had never heard of called Chicago. Wow. This was 1994, I guess. So it hadn't been been on Broadway yet. And I just had an epiphany of like, why aren't I doing that? That's yeah. what I was supposed to do. Did you audition? Nope. <laughs> but uh, I did audition for the show next year and got into the drama thing. And uh, So you became a big drama that. program in high school? Was oh, it? yeah. And at what point did you realize this was the thing that you were going to pursue? Yeah, I'm not quite sure. Um, I think... I, I have no idea. I, I, I have no fascinating origin story to report, but um, it was probably gradual and uh, it probably had a little bit to do with my own love for the the craft and the art form and something to do with the fact that I was getting laughs every now and then and people were responding. So I thought maybe I'm not totally wasting everyone's time. Yeah. And um, because you're such a, a, a rigorous classical enthusiast and, and you know so much, you're a scholar, how did how did the classics come into play? Was that, you know, obviously I know you read Shakespeare in high school, but were you identifying with the work so much that y you felt ignited to study it in a, a collegiate level? Or So first of all, I mean, I consider – so I started out doing musicals and musical theater and that was my first love. Yeah. Um, but I consider musical theater and uh, – maybe the classics in general, but Shakespeare specifically, to be cousins, close yeah. cousins. The expressive demands of the material are similar. I think they attract similar kinds of performers and people. Um, and you have to really put yourself out there yeah. to do that material in a way that maybe realism and naturalism um, and straight plays don't always demand. So... It was sort of a natural transition, but the reason I got into Shakespeare is because I met another mentor. Um, this is a theme. Uh, another mentor named Louis Sheeter, who originally founded and ran the classical studio in the drama department. And uh, it was probably the first day in class with him in, what would that be, uh, September of 2000. You did undergrad at NYU? Yeah. Oh, okay. So I did my first two years in the musical theater program and, and the way the at drama Cap department... 21? Yeah. Wow. And the way the drama department works is you can sort of taste from the different conservatories within the program. And so I auditioned for Louis and uh, spent a year with him at the classical studio doing Shakespeare. And that's where everything changed once again. And I realized... Um, I didn't know I this. You were acting. To... I did not oh, know yeah. that about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I... I haven't studied directing. I, I I came to this as a performer. That's so, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, but it's interesting. For some reason, I thought you were studying directing at, at NYU. No, 
Wow, that's amazing. And I took so, a couple of classes, but no. And so then when you kind of get that undergrad degree, at what point, you know, because I've talked to you a lot about this as I've tried to pursue my own MFA, at what point did you decide that that would be the logical move to continue your studies? Well, I, um, so when I finished my year at the classical studio, I still had a year left of school. Yeah. Um, and had some great experiences, but knew that my relationship with Louis wasn't quite done yet. So by the... By the time I graduated from NYU, I had asked him already, you know, can I assist you for a semester or so? Yeah. And just be behind the scenes and watch you work without the stress of having to perform for you. So he, uh, as he always did, said yes. And uh, that began what has turned out to be, let's see, almost a 20-year relationship um, where you know, he, he never meant to sort of mentor a teacher, but I basically got a free grad school out of uh, being his assistant for a while. Then he would slowly start to give me some rehearsals on my own. I would start to do some private coachings with the students. Um, I, he got me a, a gig teaching a two-point elective on Shakespeare in the department. And long story short, there was a snowball into me eventually becoming a full-time faculty member. And then um, upon the sad occasion of Louis having a stroke uh, a few years ago, um, uh, running the studio myself. Yeah. And so talk to me, uh, when you went to grad school, what, what was your field of study? So that was, um, so I actually got a, I got an MA, a master's, M- not okay. an MFA, um, because I actually, there was a, I wanted to write the thesis. I wanted, I had a thesis in, in mind that I wanted to write, um, which is one of the reasons people go and pursue a master's. Uh, so it wasn't for any sort of vocational training or additional training in the arts. It was actually an academic program at NYU, um, cause I wanted to write, um, I had you know, the way the drama program is structured, as you know, is sort of half academic, half conservatory training. Yeah. I, I really took to the academic portion of things. Yeah. And um, I started developing this sort of half-baked theory while I was still an undergrad that the explosion of what we now refer to as realism and naturalism in the theater um, – plays, domestic plays about, you know, quote unquote, real people mm-hmm. um, in household situations, uh, dealing with uh, the problems that encounter, that real people encounter, you know, versus stories of kings and queens and and all that kind of stuff, um, that uh, those plays come about in the 19th century and then people like Konstantin Stanislavski come about to formulate an acting methodology for those plays based on what's called psychological realism Mm -hmm. that this is again another long story short that none of that would have been possible without the pre-existence of photography and photographic realism Um, to put it another way the, the Discourses and practices of acting that have dominated, especially film and TV, mm-hmm. which is what we call psychological realism, that that's, that's what dominates those media um, precisely because those media are photographic art forms. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I can go on about this. No, I, I love this it. Was, yeah. This resulted in a 100-page thesis. And um, it was one of those things where uh, well, the masters served twofold. One, I guess to a degree I got uh, uh, you know, a higher degree, but um, it got this out of my system yeah. so I could write this paper and take these classes and work with these professors. But also, you know, because I got part of it paid for by scholarship, but I took the full loan amount out, which was how I was able to work with Louis on a very low stipend, ah. but still put basically work full time as a student and at the studio wow. and only work a, you know, real job yeah. uh, over the summers. And so then because you did your, your master's in academia, how did you get to become such a master of iambic and classical? Was it just by studying under Louis? Yeah. Or? Louis is, as he describes himself, an iambic fundamentalist. And um, we we both have been influenced by a good friend of ours and someone I would also consider a mentor, Tim Carroll. Yeah. One who, of the foremost Northeastern Shakespearean scholars, right? Uh, uh, maybe the world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's from he's from the UK and uh, ran the Globe for a number of years with Mark Rylance, and now he runs uh, the uh, the Shaw Festival in Canada. And we've had a relationship with him for years. He's taught for us for many years, and he is also an iambic fundamentalist. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was through Louis and then Tim that I um, really grew to understand and appreciate that the pattern of the de dum de dum de dum de dum de dum yeah. is intrinsic to this art form and to its performance. It's not an accident that he wrote that way, Shakespeare. And I spoke to Kathleen Turner about this when she was on the show because she spent a lot of time in London because her father was a diplomat. And I feel like, you know, one of the things that I feel Americans are robbed of educationally is that, you know, the the British and a lot of Europeans, they in elementary and middle school, they spend so much time reading Shakespeare. And if they do any kind of acting, it's it's not contemporary. Usually a lot of it is Elizabethan text. And I don't think we get that a lot here. So I imagine when you're teaching at NYU and you're coaching these people, you have a lot of people tackling iambic that have not really had the chance to do it before, which is probably the allure of coming to a place like Classical Studio at NYU. How do you help those who don't have that Elizabethan natural speech to understand the rhythmic patterns of of the way Shakespeare writes, you know. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I mean, as as far as the UK is concerned, um, there's I think it can be generally said that there's uh, certainly a longer tradition and also a greater tradition of um, appreciation for the spoken word. Yeah. Um, you know, they still do radio programs and radio plays and radio drama there, yeah. which seems almost unheard of yeah. here, um, except maybe with the Prairie Home Companion. Um, so, uh, so that tradition of the spoken word is already there, whereas, you know, America is Hollywoodized and, um, and if any, if there's any sort of speech pattern yeah. We've adopted as a, nat a, a national uh, habit. It's the way people speak in California because that was at least originally where the TV was made. Totally. And, you know, speaking of totally, uh, <laughs> that's, that's where, um, you know, people tend to talk with their mouth closed yeah. there. And it's, uh, it's a lot of, you know, the Valley Girl speech from the 80s is sort of still cut the on. The likes. And, yeah. yeah. Like, um, so, um, I mean, you could also go back to... 
uh, the, the the most famous mumbler of all time, Marlon Brando, yeah. and in mid-century American acting that really valued the valued subtext over text, and and thought that the mumbling of Brando was quote real because uh, it was guttural. Yeah, it was um, it was feeling versus um, thought. Yeah, you know. Uh, anyway, um, so uh, as far as American students coming to Shakespeare, I don't know that they're any less, um, certainly not less intellectually prepared. Yeah. But um, yeah, there maybe there is a certain period in which you're making the case that uh, words can do things to people. Yeah. Words can uh, – w- words have an impact and Shakespeare's characters are always – making attempts to make an impact yeah. with their words. And, um, yeah, that takes some some training and some time. But uh, ideally, it's ultimately more instinctive than anything. And do you think, you know, there is no easy way because reading Shakespeare can be arduous for Americans or non-Americans. And what is – I don't want to say there's a key, but what has helped you as a teacher and for your students – help understand it because obviously I know there's like, for example, I hate to say this, but no fear Shakespeare and there's spark notes and things like that. But like at a certain point, you know, when I work with you, for example, you had me do, um, say we worked on Romeo from Romeo and Juliet, but then you had me do, uh, Edmund from King Lear. And I feel like at first when I'm memorizing it, I, I honestly have no idea. You know what I mean? The way it's written because it's, you know, got the 10 syllables and then I'm just trying to lock in the next one. And I, I have no idea, but it's not till I work on it. So I genuinely have it memorized and that I start doing it, hmm. that I understand exactly what he's saying, you know, and that's not an easy thing. I'm, I'm, I'm summarizing an end result very quickly, but what has helped your students because you have students do full-fledged productions in undergrad, which is, is no easy task. And what has helped them understand the, you know, it's almost like a, the, the, the Shakespearean language. I, I'm sure it's not one thing, but because you have so many students, like, is it doing the work? Is it constantly reading? Is it, is it constantly performing? Well, yes, 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 and yes. I mean, practice is underrated. Yeah. I think um, maybe with acting in general, but certainly with Shakespeare. Um, look, uh, there's a few principles that, when applied to Shakespeare, I think tend to really open up the material. Um, the one is um, that whoever the character is, whatever the situation is, they need to want to speak. And, you know, as you know, in Shakespeare, there's characters in all kinds of high stakes, scary situations. Uh, people are confronted by the murderer of their children. Yeah, this kind of stuff. Um, and the impulse of an actor, especially an actor new to Shakespeare, is that they are just need to represent a state of being upset yeah. about this situation. When actually what this writer is, is doing, because he's also just a good dramatist, yeah. is he's putting two people into a room who, especially if they hate each other, need something from each other. Yeah. And if you really need something from somebody, then sort of it follows that you want to speak if that's all you have to achieve that thing. Yeah. So um, 
just the just just by beginning by wanting to speak in the first place that that Lady Anne and Richard the uh, Third again she's confronted with the murderer of um, seems half her family um, that she wants to be there in that scene with him yeah um, that just opens up so much more creative possibilities than I don't want to be here this isn't worth my time yeah. Right, which is often the way actors begin with that kind of material. So wanting to speak. Um, the other, another, uh, I mean, we already talked about the verse. I could talk about that for years, but the verse helps. Because, um, you know, verse isn't just about de-dum, 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 and that sort of pattern of, of that rhythm. Um, Shakespeare writes verse in lines. And uh, the lines, lines rather than sentences. So in other words, a verse line of Shakespeare, which tends to be 10 or 11 syllables, yeah. um, isn't necessarily uh, a sentence. Sometimes yeah. it's just a fragment of a thought. Yeah. So what's he doing there? What, what's the value of that? The value of that is, well, that's how we speak. Yeah. That's how we think. We don't speak in complete sentences. Of course not. Actors memorize their lines very often as complete sentences, but that's, that's artificial, right? Yeah. Because um, we don't – it would be very weird if someone spoke yeah. in complete sentences. Periods, punctuations, comma, that's there for readers to understand what separates one thought from another. Um, but the verse is there. Um, the verse lines are there to remind you that it's actually someone thinking out loud and speaking as they're thinking precisely because they're in a high-stakes situation without a script yeah. because it's something new. It's uncharted territory. How is how is the murderer of my husband showing up at my funeral for him? Yeah. Right? She doesn't have a prepared speech for that. So um, so we work on the verse, again, not just in terms of the rhythm, but just valuing the line over the sentence. Yeah. Just a basic reminder that um, no matter how eloquent a character may be, very often in Shakespeare, they're actually not very eloquent um, that they're still coming up with this stuff. Um, I guess I, without going on too long, I'll just say a third thing about this material that I, I would say works every time, um, which is that they have this nasty habit Shakespeare's characters do of meaning what they say. Yeah. Right? Um, again, American acting tends to presume that the words are some form of a, how would I say, um, a cover for what's, quote, really going on yeah. underneath the scene. Um, and that, that, that whatever people are saying, they don't really mean. Um, whereas in Shakespeare, you can, if, if you just imagine what it would be like if this person meant the thing they said, Again, a world of creative possibilities opens up versus what especially young people resort to, which is sarcasm or asking rhetorical questions yeah. or saying something and, and not really meaning it. Yeah. And I'm curious to ask you, you know, I, I imagine part of the program for when you cast these students in roles, a lot of it is probably casting them in, in, in parts they may not be right for, because I think there's a lot to be learned in that. Or, it, you know, how, how does the casting of, of the roles come about? Is it who's right or is it playing against type? It's a combination of things. I mean, look, casting, one of the fun things about Shakespeare's is, is there's no 
right way to cast it for the most part. Yeah. You know, first of all, these were originally performed by white men um, wearing dresses half the time, sometimes white boys wearing dresses. Um, and without going too much into cliche, there's there's enough universal stuff going on in these plays yeah. that by and large they can really be inhabited by any actor with a facility for language. Um, so when I cast uh, the plays, if I'm working on something outside of school or in school, I'm thinking, yeah, a combination of um, do I think this person can really pull off what I think is required of this character? Yeah. Uh, the inverse of that is, 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 are they in the limited, limited amount of time we have, could, the, could I be setting this person up for failure? Yeah. Which isn't very pedagogically sound. Yeah. Um, so that goes into it. Yeah. Often it's, if I detect a certain amount of fear in an actor for a character. Yeah. Um, that inspires me. <laughs> uh, and, I would say those 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 two things are on my mind and just yeah, is there something that this individual who I may not even know very well can bring to this that would make it frankly interesting for me to do yeah. the the third or fourth time I've done Merchant of Venice or the fifth time I've done Romeo and Juliet, you know. And what are your thoughts on modern interpretations of the classics? You know, I know obviously in the early 90s we had a very commercial film Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, mm. you know, contextualize it in modern day. Do you and then that kind of, I think, ignited a phenomenon of a lot of theater directors doing the same thing. What What do you think about modern iterations of of these pieces? Well, you have different kind. Yeah, you have different kinds of um, modern productions. You have, you know, the Cheek by Jowl, which is a very good company in uh, in the UK uh, that does productions that are in modern dress. Yeah, sort of like the Men in Suits way of doing Shakespeare, but aren't necessarily what you might call concepts. You know, he's not setting Hamlet in Vietnam in 1969 right. and seeing what happens. Uh, so it's, you know, to, to put Shakespeare, actors of Shakespeare in modern dress sort of can cue to the audience, even if it's in an otherwise empty theater can cue to the audience that this stuff is relevant. Right. You know, this stuff means something today, too. Um, versus, you know, you start putting them in Elizabethan garb, and it's easy to say, oh, those people yeah. versus us. Yeah, we were just talking about Much Ado About Nothing at Shakespeare in the Park, which was a, a modern realization. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And an excellent one. Um, but so, but you have other modernized productions that are what I would call conceptual. Again, you know, setting... The Merchant of Venice in Vegas, for example, um, setting Hamlet. That's like so I said, interesting. Now everywhere. I really want to do that. <laughs> a Bellagio production. Of you know, and, and my my feeling on that is: look, if anything can work, anything yeah. can be interesting. And, yeah. Um, I think it was uh, the eminent Shakespeare scholar Harold Bloom, who I saw interviewed once. I may be wrong, but basically, whoever said it said. Um, a uh, con a concept will never teach you anything about Shakespeare, but Shakespeare will always teach you something about that concept. Yeah. So you sh you set Merchant of Venice in Vegas, in theory, 
Um, and um, you're probably not going to learn something new about that play that you didn't know before. Yeah. But it might open up a world of possibilities of how you think about Las Vegas and gambling and this and that. Yeah, um, yeah I've, I've yet to see in all the Shakespeare productions I've seen a conceptualized production where I thought, now I get that play. Right. You know, because often, often, and look, I have those ideas myself. I'm like, you know, working on a play, wouldn't it be interesting to do Hamlet in um, an apartheid South Africa? That yeah. would really work. But what would really, really work in those moments when you think is like this one scene, yeah, right? Or this one moment, moment. of this scene yeah. where like that is perfect. That justifies it. It's genius. Yeah. Yeah. So then you have two and a half, three hours left of this play to stuff into that Contextual form. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, and it's usually forced. And then talk to me about the Goldberg Department of Dramatic Writing. How did that happen? Obviously, I know you wrote this incredible thesis. But were you always a writer? or No, I'm not a dramatist yeah. uh, by any measure. Um, I just appreciate it and, and maybe have a sense sometimes of uh, what writers are getting at in their writing, what their intentions might be. But um, no, that just that came about like most things. You know, we were talking on the way over to the studio about, you know, how people – get gigs in this business and really the dirty truth is it's people you know yeah <laughs> um someone recommends you for something so i just got a call from uh the woman who was running that program at the time yeah. who was asking i think it was louis once again mentor louis um uh if she had anyone who could teach this long-running class that they needed a new teacher for called shakespeare for writers wow. louis said yeah this guy yeah. As he often did. And um, Are you in the, the master's or the undergrad? The undergrad. Undergrad. Okay. So I taught that for a few years, which I loved, yeah. but it was just too much work to do in addition to all yeah. the things I do in the drama department. So now what I do up there is I teach a combined class with the um, few undergraduate actors and the graduating playwriting students who are working on their thesis scripts. Wow. We put them into a room together. I co-teach it with... Uh, um, a dramatic writer, an, an actual dramatist, yeah. Julian, and um, yeah, we workshop this new, these new plays, these full-length scripts for the semester, and it's wow. so it's one of those things where you'd think that's what they do at a school of the arts, but yeah. it hasn't been a given. Wow. Um, so my job at that department, really at this point, is to make more things like that happen, to make uh, the two departments come into a much more. Um, and you're you're quite amazing about that because you, uh, you you've reached out to me and other students before to help come read some of these works yeah. in the, the department. Which yeah, and I get a budget now, so I can bring in people like you and actors I know and appreciate, and I know who can sort of step up to the plate and do cold readings that are three yeah. dimensional, and I get to pay them to come in and workshop. You know, sometimes it's a forty year old actor um, workshopping a twenty year old's script, and I think it's a gift for both parties. Totally. And I'm curious because we talked about it in the beginning of how I met you. You you co-taught contemporary scene study with Alec Baldwin, which I auditioned for you for. Mm -hmm. Was that your first time teaching a contemporary class at NYU? Hmm. Um, it might be. You know, when I coach actors outside of the school, I, I do a lot of contemporary material. Yeah. Um, but I th you, the, actually the only other time maybe before that that I worked certainly on contemporary scenes – was um, the first time Baldwin and I were put in a room together, which was um, 
I want to say 2000. So that class was 2013, right? Yeah, 2013. 2006 when um, – Before 30 Rock, right? Yeah. yeah. The, the the I think it was the dean put some of us into a room with Alec. Alec is great about, you know – He's an he alumni. Wants, he, he's, an alum, yeah. he's an alum and he loves teaching. He's a sort of a nerd for acting and um, – but likes to teach with other people, and yeah. likes to teach with acting teachers. And so, how was that experience for you working with someone who's not only one of the most amazing actors, but also is a massive celebrity? Was that a overwhelming experience? Was that an exciting time? It or? was a little nutty yeah. that first week. You know, I was 25, I think, and I, I was just sort of starting yeah. to teach. Um, but we had a sort of natural back and forth, and he's very generous in terms of sharing the – uh, stage in the classroom and um, likes to have a partnership like that. So yeah. it worked out really well to the extent that when we were doing a sort of postmortem, this was like a what three day workshop. It yeah. wasn't a real class. Um, when we were doing our postmortem with the with the heads of the department afterwards, Alex said, "You know, I really want to do this more regularly with this guy." Yeah, um, pretty sure I blushed. And uh, well, you guys work so well together. Yeah. I mean, that was incredible. I, I I wish those classes were filmed because I think they'd be so beneficial to the, you know. Then he then he said, um, sort of immortally to us, he said, "But I but I got to sh- before I commit to anything, I got to shoot this pilot first. <laughs> so sure um, enough, that, seven years later, yeah. But no, no, literally seven years. I think it was later. He um we he got in touch with me, the day after technically the day that they wrapped 30 rock yeah um i guess they had shot and then partied till late at night gets up in the morning we meet um for the first time in all those years to start planning a class yeah <laughs> a semester long class so was that was that the last time you guys have done it have you done one since or no, he's he's threatened to return and um, <laughs> do more teaching. Yeah, um, uh, and I'm sure I, I'm sure it's in the cards. It's, in, it's, it's it'll happen again. Yeah. But uh, you know, he's got he's got a big family right yeah. now, and uh, uh, well, on behalf of work for those kids of every actor in that class, you signed off on us pursuing this for the rest of our lives and it was such an amazing realization of of working with you and him together about what was possible as actors and as humans and as individuals and i'm curious to ask you to kind of break this down for those listening out there the undergrad versus the graduate acting because undergrad you know there's some schools that offer masters or i'm sorry uh bachelor's programs which is uh less conservatory more of a in your junior, senior year, you get kind of acting. But NYU offers a BFA program where you spend about, I would say, almost 60, 40, 60 acting, 40 academia. And even most of your academia is kind of theater related. And I'm curious, what have you found to make for, you've been to, at NYU for a long time, actors that have had success in, in undergrad? What it, what, has there been anything, consistent factors that have contributed to what you've seen consistent success and success. I mean, just being able to make a living at this, not superstardom. You mean from alumni yeah. who have gone out yeah. and pursued this? Uh, I have a really boring answer to that question. It's okay. <laughs> Give it to me. Or annoying. Maybe it's annoying. I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, for years I would get calls from 
alums, uh, former students, and friends just in the business that I know who'd say, hey, Daniel, guess what? I got this. I got in. I got this job. Uh, Broadway show, feature film, yeah. TV show, something, you know, the kind of gig that, that when they say your foot's in the door, they mean. Um, and for years, very often this would happen I'd, and I'd kind of go, you? Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say that to them, <laughs> but I would think, wow, yeah. you, okay. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe, why do I, why did I say that? Maybe because when they were a student, they, uh, couldn't bring as much to the table yeah. as I, as I would have hoped for, or would have wanted or whatever. But then I get off the phone or close the email and I think about it and, What's true pretty much 100% of the time with those students and any other student who sort of, quote, makes it, um, is there were two things, that two qualities that that student had. Um, to a degree, of course, talent, just leaving that aside for a second, but um, that they worked really hard. Yeah. These were the, this was the kid who showed up to rehearsal early stayed late, um, asked a lot of questions, um, really sort of dug into it in a, in a non vain way. You know, they wanted to crack, uh, the material. Yeah. They were a nerd for acting. That's the way I sort of put it. Um, the other thing, and this is, and this is really what I think divides, um, our alumni into the, to, to those who sort of find success and those who don't is there there are people who show up to I guess any drama department or any acting program in the world who really 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 want to act yeah right and then there are people who really need to act yeah and uh, there's a lot of fans out there yeah a lot of fans with talent a lot of fans who can with charisma yeah or who are good looking and who can go a, to a go so far and, yeah. and, and maybe even has some success. But the people I know who are really working in this business and have suffered all the rejection that they've suffered and the setbacks, and we were just talking about a mutual friend who thought he had a major show and yeah. then it disappeared and that kind of stuff, that um, the people who basically survive yeah. all of that are have that bug yeah. In their brain or their heart or their soul where they need to do this. And I've just seen so many students get better over the years, over their career, because um, because of that um, because and, of that bug. And that insane desire to keep going. And that, that, that it, yeah. more than a desire. Yeah. It's, 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 it really an is imperative. like an, an, an imperative. Thank yeah. you. Um, and um, – Whereas, again, I think the vast majority of people yeah. really love it. Yeah. That's a different thing, right? I love classical music. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I um, love working out, but I'm not on it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, so that's uh, as abstract as that may be of an answer to your question. That's, that's, that's the truth. Yeah. You know, the, the people you see up on stage on a, on a major stage in New York – Obviously, there's talent there. <laughs> I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to um, understate the importance of talent. But there's also you can get better at this. Yeah. 
Um, but getting better at this and staying in the business takes a whole lot of need. Because you have to exist and you have to survive. Turns out. And so then for those listening, you know, maybe some people did do the conservatory training and got their bachelor's or BFA. And then some, maybe they studied, you know, science. Hmm. Talk to me about graduate acting. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think is the allure and what is the benefit of an individual who maybe is not yet an actor, who is an actor and does not have any success of continuing their education to get their MFA? So there's a few benefits to doing a grad acting program. I'll begin with the sort of most pragmatic, which is, you know, if you get an MFA, a master's in fine arts, that's what's called a terminal degree, yeah. meaning you can't go higher. Yeah. And MFAs are looked on very positively by um, people who employ actors beyond the stage, like teacher, you know, to do teaching. Yeah. Um, and to get jobs, yeah, to do, for the most part, teaching, uh, which is a nice day gig. Yeah. If you're an actor. Better than um, waiting tables, for sure. But very yeah. often, especially if it's a um, higher education institution, a college, university, they want an MFA on your resume or what they'll sometimes say is, you know, or, or a tremendous amount of professional experience, right. uh, commensurate experience. But um, so it gets you that degree, which tells, I guess, some of the world that, um, well, literally you've mastered this art form. Yeah. Um, but they take 12, most programs only take 12 students. Well, it depends on yeah. the program. Yeah. Um, so if you go to one of the top programs, Juilliard, Juilliard Yale, Yale, NYU, NYU. Um, those are the three that tend to hover around as the sort of the most prestigious or the, the sexiest um, grad schools for acting. You're also getting um, those very important few minutes at the end of those three or four years where you are in front of some of the most uh, influential folks in the industry who yeah. do casting, who do management, who direct shows, um, who know that those, however many, 10, 12, 15 students have been vetted, have worked very hard for the past few years yeah. with some of the great teachers, that um, it's just one way of narrowing down yeah. you know, the great crop of actors yeah. on any given day in New York. Um, but the other, you know... Those are sort of some pragmatic benefits of getting your MFA. The other reason to get an MFA is uh, practice. Yeah. Three years of that's all you're doing. Being in the gym every day, working out, getting better. That's what you're doing. Have you seen actors that have not gotten to graduate school be able to break into the theater community? Of course. You have. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh, yes, 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 yes. I mean, look, there's X amount of – available roles at any given moment there's y amount of grads out there from juilliard yale at nyu you know i think the former is larger than the latter yeah um and uh you know sometimes grad school can take you from a mediocre actor to a great actor yeah sometimes it can just refine what's already great yeah um but it's certainly not uh the uh only way to uh make it to to make it or to be happy making it um although you know some casting directors may say on a given day only bring me the mfas yeah again it's it's a practical way of limiting the pool of people to see for an audition process 
Are there any theater directors in particular? I imagine, I, I know it's not going to be long until you're directing a Broadway play, but that haven't inspired you and you've kind of seen like that, you know, Joe Minatello, that's the career, or Joe Bonnie, that's the career, you know, is that something you're interested in eventually? Um, you know, I, I, I used to be more interested in, in directing professionally than I was. I, I really love my life right now. Yeah. You know, I, I teach. Yeah. Um, I get to direct a couple plays at NYU every year and I get to choose what they are yeah. and how long I rehearse them and how I rehearse them. Um, I get, I get to outside of school, I get to coach professional actors. Um, I get to do other teaching gigs over the summer and then I get to travel yeah. because I have essentially three and a half months away from my day job. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a pretty cool, I, I just, I like what I, I like what I I like what I do. Yeah. Um, so I go to the theater more as a fan than anything. Um, I already mentioned Tim Carroll, who's yeah. a brilliant director. And uh, if, if, if anyone if – that name doesn't ring a bell to anyone, but they remember a few years ago when um, – the Globe from London brought two two Shakespeare plays to Broadway, the Richard the yeah. Third and the Twelfth uh, Night, both with Mark Rylance and Stephen Fry. Um, Tim directed those productions, and yeah. they were very successful. Uh, another director I appreciate. Um, sorry to go on about these Brits, no. but uh, Declan Donellan, who runs the Cheek by Jowl Company. Yeah. Um, I think what what binds both of these directors together is is they do classics, they do Shakespeare, and what's of utmost importance to them yeah. isn't a concept, isn't um, an interpretation of the play, yeah. but it's the clearest possible execution of that play wow. with the best actors. Yeah, I'm here for that. Oh, God, directors. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned a couple, Joe, uh, the Joes. Yeah, are uh, are um, I. Very much appreciate their work. Uh, what, it, yeah, I, I, I could go on for about. What, what's what's inspiring you in entertainment wise or non entertainment wise? You know what keeps you you know inspired to keep excelling at this. Hmm. A, um, this is a cheesy answer, but it's true. My my students inspire me. Um, students these days, they got a lot to say. Yeah, you may have heard. Yeah, they got a lot to say. They have a lot on their mind. Um, especially when it comes to what we're sort of in the business of, which is representation. Yeah. And I'm having conversations with my students that 10 years ago, five years ago, maybe three years ago, would have just seemed like um, total fiction. Yeah. You know, things about identity and uh, representation, uh, casting, who gets to play whom, yeah. who gets to write whom. Um, and all of these sort of really interesting conversations are inspiring me and getting me very excited to go to work every day. Uh, I don't see a tremendous amount of theater because I'm so busy and, and I tend to yeah. rehearse in the evenings. But um, trying to think of I, – I, I actually, in a rare moment, I saw a Shakespeare production this summer. We just talked about this yeah. that I – that I really adored, which was um, the public's Much Ado About Nothing. Which will hopefully be on PBS soon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah directed by Kenny Leon, uh, a cast entirely, entirely of actors of color. Uh, and it was one of the clearest, most sort of ebullient 
personality fueled specific productions of a Shakespeare play yeah. I've ever seen. Um, I haven't traditionally loved that play, yeah. but this production sold it to me. Wow. And um, it was just a great advertisement for, you know, one of the problems with Shakespeare is people think there's a right way of doing these plays yeah. or there's a, um, that there are rules to how these human beings should function in these plays. And there's really not. Um, you've got some evidence in the text, some cues in the text for what's going on, yeah. right? Um, if you can bring your own personality to bear on that, whatever the evidence is of the text, you've got a great you've got a great thing going. Yeah. In this production, you just had um, each of these actors brought their own personality to these parts, and it wasn't you know, quote unquote, the way Beatrice is supposed to be done. It was is it Danielle Brooks? It was it was Danielle yeah. Brooks's Beatrice. Yeah, that's the whole point. Yeah. Yeah. She's so good. Oh god. <laughs> you know, that's 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 the point. I want to see your Beatrice, yeah. not some scholar's version of it. And I'm curious to ask, and if the answer is no, we can cut this, but uh I imagine I'm gonna have a lot of listeners asking to work with you now. Do you have a website or a way <laughs> people can reach out to you, or do you only work with NYU alums or is there a way for people to to reach out to you if they want to take a class? I'm always happy to continue the conversation. Um, I, I guess the best way to reach me is um, Daniel Harry Spector at gmail.com. And my last name is spelled with an O, Daniel Harry Spector at gmail.com. Amazing. Daniel, thank you so much for being here. Thank it means you. so much to me. You've been so integral in me discovering how to be a better actor, how to be a better person, and how to be a better learner. You're awesome. Yeah. I love you, Daniel. Thank you for being here. Thank you, sir. Yeah. If you like the show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.